This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Sam, I've really enjoyed these uh, amazing people in Hopeland and hearing their stories. Mm -hmm. And today we've got a really special treat. So Matt Hendricks has transformed the lives of uh, over 42,000 people in Africa by giving them the incredible gift of clean water. Amazing. Uh, This is through the charity Water Works Program. And he joins us right now. Hey, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. No worries, Matt. Can you just take us into what Waterworks is and the impact? And we've already mentioned the impact it's having globally, but can you take us uh, into it a bit more? Yeah, it's a um, it's a pretty unique opportunity where we bring a whole bunch of bits of plastic and metal to your conference or training or even to your your, your, your families get together at Christmas or something, and your um, team physically gets an opportunity to build a life saving water filtration system that's going to benefit the lives of at least ten people in a refugee camp in Africa. So, pretty extraordinary opportunity. Now, you've actually chosen the angle, obviously, of serving refugee camps in Africa. Why did you make that decision, mate? Well, let me kind of take you on the journey. Um, we, we got involved in Waterworks at first, and we knew that this was the biggest problem in the world. We knew all the statistics, but the statistics sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but they kind of bore me, and, and I get kind of confused. So, I went on my first trip to Africa to kind of understand what the problem was like firsthand, and I had the opportunity to visit a place called Chakatu Refugee Settlement Camp. Mm. Um, I was struck as we drove through the gates immediately that I was um, obviously misunderstanding the context I was going into because there were no gates. There were no gates or fences keeping people in or out. All of a sudden, I was kind of struck um, with the context that in Australia, I guess, we equate detention centre with refugee camp. And, um, and, and so I sort of knew I was, I was ploughing into the unknown, but we kept on driving on. And, um, and equally, I was struck by how happy these kids were. I was, I was taking photos and showing them their image in a viewfinder, and a bunch of them probably hadn't even seen a viewfinder before. So you've never seen kids giggle like they giggle when you take a photo of them and then show it to them in a refugee camp in Uganda. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then I, I'm sort of taking photos. I take a photo of this one kid and he's got a, um, a plastic bottle um, which he's turned into a, um, a, a toy car, which he was pulling along with a piece of string. I take a photo of it. He's proud as punch. I hear some, some music. I walk around the, the room. I see all these kids singing and they're singing for me. And I'm at this point. I'm thinking refugee camps. Wow, how amazing! And 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 you know, I'm feeling guilty because I'm thinking, boy, I'm a miserable sod most of the time. And look at all the stuff I've got. Look at how happy these kids are. And as I was about to leave, I thought, you know what? I've got a whole bunch of our empty um, water bottles in our in the footwell of our car. I felt embarrassed, but I asked my translator, "Would the kids want these?" And I kind of wound down the window. And I reached out and I gave an empty bottle to one of the kids and he ran off with it and a fight started, quite a serious fight. <laughs> and it, it was kind of in that moment as I was, I didn't give out any more bottles. Um, and as we drove off, I kind of realised, boy, oh boy, we need to help these people because I, I kind of realised it was put into perspective that ultimately this camp, these people um, absolutely were happy with what, they had to some extent and were making the most of it and had a, a sense of hope, but but boy, they were they were fighting over my rubbish, <laughs> and mm. and it was kind of at that point where I was like, boy, we've got to help 
I guess, the most desperate of the desperate. These aren't people in Uganda, in remote Uganda, where the people are relatively poor and, and, and desperate already. These are people that are fleeing to Uganda from places that are worse, and, and, and so we just felt like we had to help them. Matt, I, I think here in Australia we are so used to having clean drinking water. Every time we turn on the tap at home, let alone we can yes. buy bottled drinking water as well, which in, in, yes. in thinking about this it seems ridiculous. But what yes. is it like living without mm-hmm. clean drinking water. Can you take us into some of the people you visited and, and the situations in which they live in? Yeah, totally. So um, a, a really great visit I had an opportunity to visit once was in the foothills of the mountains that separate Kenya and Uganda. It's a, a district called Soronko. And I was lucky enough to spend some time with a, um, a pastor who was helping us distribute a whole bunch of the water systems um, there um, and also spend some time in the school um, the first trip we did as we walked around, he took us to all of the different official water sources. Um, and, and bear in mind that the official water sources, I guess, are the equivalent to them of what a tap is to us. They're the sources that the government has said, yeah, go to these, um, go to these bores and you're, you're probably going to be safe. The local government had recently tested each of those 98 water bores and found that only four of them were testing at safe levels of E. coli. So um, you then kind of, we then started to visit with people and realised, well, how do they live? And we started visiting with different um, folk all around um, the kind of the, the, the region that we were helping. And um, effectively, the best way to explain it is all of these folks live in mud huts that they've built themselves. Um, if they're really lucky, they might have some metal sheeting on the roof, so um, they're, they're, it's waterproof at least. Um, but effectively... In each of those kind of um, groups of one, two, three houses, they'll also have dug a pit latrine. So it's effectively, you know, a pit, a pit latrine, I guess, is what we would we would just call an old-fashioned outdoor dunny, a thunderbox, that kind of thing. Yeah. But effectively, these guys, you've got in a village in Soronko, we had 100 households we helped in that village. Um, for that 100 households, they would have had 30 or 40-odd pit latrines, <laughs> and, and, and they're all dug pretty close to those official water sources. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty obvious when you look in with a bit of a kind of scientific frame of reference, you can see, well, boy, oh boy, all they need is a bit of rain and the water table kind of raises and you'll just have cross-pollination and, and, and yuck on all levels. So, you know, it's it, that, that kind of gives you a sense of what the water problem is there, even if you're a really great parent, which most of them are, and you're really passionate about going to that water source that you've been told to go to, you're likely to be getting dirty water even from that water source. Um, and and when you get home, <laughs> um, you know, you're exhausted. It, it's fair to say that the women do almost all of the manual labour in these villages. <laughs> and so they're primary caregivers, they're collecting wood, they're collecting water. And so it's just... The, the challenge of not only collecting that water, um, but also kind of preventing toddlers from playing with it and cross-contaminating it, even if it was clean in the first place, that's real as well. So that's the, that's the cool thing about our water systems is that not only do they make a difference and make water perfectly safe, but they also provide a, a sanitary storage solution right at the point where those women are going to be needing the water. And I, I, I say women not to be... Um, you know, um, gender kind of biased or anything, but that's the, that's the environment that, 
that, that these people are living in where, where women definitely have a very clear role in, in that particular village. I guess I, I want to take one step back for a moment and I, I kind of think about, you know, my experiences on short-term missions and you, you kind of come back with that post-mission high where, you're, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, let's change the world and I want to get in, involved in that. And, you know, over time that starts to wear a little bit. But I, I yes. feel like for you, your experience in Uganda like radically altered the entire trajectory of your life. You know, what, what's the motive? Yeah. What's the motivation? Because many people have these experiences, but for you, you you are clearly now motivated to make this your lifelong mission. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things. It's a kind of a uh, a weird confluence of events that I couldn't have predicted. But it kind of worked perfectly for me. Looking back in retrospect now, um, I'm a, I'm a, a organisational psychologist and a, um, a human resources professional by trade, and so I guess the thing for me that enabled me to kind of stay on this kind of mission longer term was the fact that not only were we coming back passionate about the problem we we're trying to solve, but that I had kind of skills that I felt could be applied towards that. So. I guess it's been really not only you're right coming back with that kind of enthusiasm to make a difference was absolutely real and I still make sure that we go to Africa at least once a year but yeah I think the thing that keeps me going during during the year is that um, yeah I really feel like that this activity isn't just an opportunity to make a difference I think it really is a world-class training activity as well I'm, I'm assuming that these um these water devices that we're putting together are kind of similar to the compassion ones. So it's like, it's as yep. simple as a plastic bucket with a special, yeah. um, uh, I want to say liver we use kidney. ceramic filtration. Yeah. That's what we use. It's a ceramic yeah. filtration filter that, that can last like a million litres or mm. something. Mm. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So that's exactly what we do. And, and actually that device is better from our experience, then things that are much more sophisticated. Why? Because when people are really desperate, they do some really odd stuff. Like if you go and, um, unfortunately, we've seen some really amazing systems installed in schools overseas that are solar-powered and metal. And and a lot of those that we've seen are actually um, in, in states of disrepair because people have stolen the, the solar panels off them to, to kind of repurpose in their homes. They've taken the metal off the thing and sold it for scrap. You know, people are desperate, do desperate things that aren't necessarily in the long-term best interest of the community. So the best thing about using fairly basic, um, older technology, and I mean, let's face it, ceramic filtration um, in the form we use it was um, commissioned originally by Queen Victoria <laughs> because she wanted her subjects to be able to drink, drink water out of, you know, the the, um, the River Thames. So it's old technology, but that old technology has some huge benefits. So, yeah, sometimes um, what's old is, is new again too. I wanted to ask about the, uh, you know, as as you go in and you see corporate teams putting together these things, is there something about the 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 physical nature of touching these these water filters and, and putting them together, this equipment, that, that you think brings a, a greater realisation for those who are putting them together? Totally. So we don't just, of course, up front in every training activity, we show some videos. We hope that we pull on heartstrings and we get people super motivated. That's, mm. that's a given. Mm. But the way that when they then practically apply themselves to the task, what they're ultimately experiencing is they're experiencing the way that that kind of sense of purpose um, actually 
changes everything in the way that they're applying their work. So out the other end of um, having a very practical experience, we can ask very practical questions like, you know, what what challenges did you have to cope with today? Well, um, a part of our activity, they use blindfolds. So, um, you know, we, we certainly don't give them any training, even though we're rolling out a new procedure. We, we taunt them with the fact that there's an unhelpful help desk, a whole bunch of stuff that's actually pretty normal day-to-day stuff that we all experience in work. But, of course, the way that they experience it in this activity is completely different to normal because they're experiencing the power of purpose in your work. And, and of course, that, that's number one thing that we often debrief at the end of the session. We'll also kind of debrief things about collaboration, the power of kind of making the whole greater than the sum of the parts when we truly kind of capture a, a shared vision together, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a, I think that's the power. It's not just that people are making a difference. And, and by the way, every every system that you donate, you get to see... Um, on a website where exactly it goes, you get a photo back from the recipient. It's pretty pretty neat in that respect. But even aside from being a cool charity project, we do think that people get a tangible value out of it. Matt, you're a champion, man, and we really appreciate taking the time to talk to you today. If you want to find out more information about the program, you can head along to waterworksprogram.com. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.